Father, we are here to consecrate, to set apart our lives for you. Lord, take our lives. Make us be what you want us to be. And that's why we sing and we listen to the reading and preaching of your word, because we understand that your spirit takes your already established truth and makes it alive in our hearts. So we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would be among us, making these words true in our hearts. I pray this, especially for those who don't know you, awaken them to the truth of your word, call them to salvation, grant them the faith and repentance they need to follow Jesus Christ. We ask this in his name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, as always, it is our joy and privilege to be together to study God's Word. If you would open your Bibles to John 3. And here we come to a story that most of you have heard, if even just that one verse, John 3.16. We are in our final week of a series about telling the truth. Not about not lying, but telling the truth of Christ to others. The saving, life-giving truth of Jesus Christ, it is the truth that transforms us, the truth that awakens a dead heart. It's the truth that is indeed good news, the gospel. And Jesus called the disciples to go and do likewise. They were to go and also make disciples just as He had done with them. Paul will inform us this is how the kingdom goes forward. Faith comes by hearing the word about Christ. And so over these last few weeks, we've been studying both the heart and the doctrine that ground our endeavors to make disciples. You know, it's pretty interesting. In the Bible, we only have a handful of examples of personal evangelism. And what is surprising to some people is that none of the, these are sort of a canned presentation. Do you believe this? Do you believe that? Now repeat after me, dear God, dear God, I know I'm a sinner, I know I'm a sinner. Each time, whether it's Nicodemus or the rich young ruler or the woman at the well or the jailer, each time it seems a bit different. What's going on here? Spencer and I were talking earlier this week and he brought up Colossians 4. What's happening in each of these evangelistic moments is the outplay of right there in the early part of Colossians chapter 4. The gospel is being presented with wisdom, seasoned with salt, timely, answering each person according to what they need to hear. Paul said in, getting in verse 2 of Colossians 4, at the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. You walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how, to, how you ought to answer each person. That's the key, isn't it? When you're making a disciple, you're not just procuring a convert, getting them through a sales pitch as quickly as possible to the point where somehow they'll acquiesce to what you want and you pat them on your back, and then, of course, you pat yourself on the back for making a convert. No, you're listening, you're teaching, you're helping, you're guiding. And you may discover, as you talk to someone, you may discover 
Perhaps in the first moment you speak to them, or maybe after several months of working with an individual, you may realize you need to emphasize certain aspects of the gospel, assure them, remind them of various parts. No, you don't avoid any of the doctrine of the gospel, but you remember always that Jesus' base message was to repent and believe, but as you make that disciple, maybe you discover perhaps they struggle with one particular area or another. Maybe this friend needs to be assured of the love of God. That's some of your testimony. You've told me. That's how you came to know Christ. It was His kindness that led you to repentance. Maybe others are different than that. Maybe you needed to hear about God's justice and judgment and about your own sin and how you're guilty before God, that God must deal with that sin. Maybe others you might discover need to know more about Christ, His person and work, and like what we talked about last week, the imputation, the double imputation of Christ. Maybe they need to give up certain false gods. This is how you're making a disciple. You're working with them, listening to them, talking with them, so that you can have that wisdom to make best use of the time to graciously answer each, each person. I wanted to mention this because I'm giving you in these weeks a, a construct, this sort of Trinitarian framework for sharing the gospel, introducing folks to God the Father, introducing folks to God the Son, and now this week, introducing others to the Spirit, God the Spirit. But I don't want you to take this as though I'm giving you some sort of canned sales pitch. Yes, you need to make sure that all the truth of the gospel is there, the holiness and justice of God, the person and work of Christ, the activity of the Spirit. But as you listen to someone and share these things with someone, you answer each person according to wisdom, the wisdom of Colossians 4. Well, Jesus demonstrated this very wisdom, this Colossians 4 wisdom, as He dealt with a man early in His ministry, and that man's name, of course, is Nicodemus. Nicodemus' problem was that he was self-righteous, he was part of the religious and spiritual elite in Israel in that time, and as with most people who believe themselves to be on some spiritual level, higher spiritual level than others, they believe that they've sort of backed God into a corner, that God must do what they require, because they have, of course, pleased God in so many ways. They've ticked all the religious and spiritual and ritual boxes, so to speak, and therefore God is bound to do what they want, and for Nicodemus, it was to let him into the kingdom. But what Nicodemus needed was, for one thing, an understanding of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus is going to tell him, the only way that you can be saved is if you are born again by the Spirit. He has to wash your soul. The, the Spirit must resurrect your dead soul. Give you the eyes to see the kingdom and compel you to believe and repent. This is called regeneration or the baptism of the Spirit, being born again. Furthermore, Jesus would add, you have no control over the Spirit. You cannot manipulate the Spirit with your activity. Just like you had nothing to do with your physical birth, you have nothing to do with your spiritual birth. You cannot cause regeneration. God, by His Spirit, must do this first in your heart in order to give you the ability to see and understand and believe and enter the kingdom. The Spirit is like the wind. He blows wherever He wishes. You don't know where He's going or where He came from. What's the evidence of this new birth? Genuine faith that produces repentance. 
If that's what you have, Jesus told Nicodemus, you will not perish, but have everlasting life. Well, let's read this familiar story. The first 21 verses, a little more than we're used to here at NBC, we're going to look at 21 verses. Follow along as I read aloud. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born again when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of the water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not where it, come from, where it comes from or where it goes. So as it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people have loved darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come into the light lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. You all know what epistemology is? Here, here he goes again using a word that I'll never hear again. Epistemology is the study of knowledge, how we know what we know. How do you know God? How do you know His will? How do you know ultimate reality? What is truth? Really, it's a question of authority. What's your full and final authority? Well, Christians are a bit divided on epistemology, believe it or not. They're divided, essentially, in my mind anyway, they're divided into three basic camps. Yes, there are always those who straddle the lines and maybe move from one camp to the next. But as, in essence, if you ask any Christian, what you'll discover pretty quickly is they fall into one of these three categories. The first camp, 
would answer that question, how do I know God? How do I know what I know? How do I know God's will? How do I know reality? They would answer that by responding, the church tells me so. This usually doesn't mean a specific local church. In fact, it usually means the Roman Catholic Church. The popes, the councils, the priests. Yes, I believe the Bible, and I believe the Bible's inspired. I believe it's God's divine word, but I also believe in the church. And the church actually tells me more than what the Bible tells me, and the church comes along and helps me understand what the Bible says. So ultimately, the church is going to help me understand and know what I'm supposed to know, particularly those things about God. My source of revelation, my source of authority is ultimately the church. Incidentally, there are plenty of Protestants who believe like this. They may not look to the Pope or the councils, but perhaps they look to a celebrity pastor or some kind of Christian movement, and just whatever that person says, I'm going to adopt and believe it without thinking too much or looking at the Scripture at all. The second camp is the camp where I hope our church is and where I am. We answer the question of epistemology, how do I know, by responding, the Bible tells me so. We believe in both sola scriptura, Scripture alone is our sole and final authority, and we believe that sister doctrine of the sufficiency of Scripture, that the Scripture is enough, it's sufficient to equip us for every good work, 2 Timothy 3.17. So if we read the Bible with obedient hearts, hearts that would understand the truth of God's Word in its original context. The Holy Spirit will use that, bring it to our minds and hearts, and apply it to us, and we'll be adequately equipped for every good work. The third camp is probably the most popular camp. Many people would answer the question of epistemology, how do I know, by saying, the Spirit tells me so. Most people today, calling themselves Christians, believe that the fundamental activity of the Holy Spirit is signs and wonders, particularly personal revelation. God coming to me on a personal way and telling me what to do. An example would be one that I hear all the time is, you know, I was, I've got this bad leg and I was driving somewhere and I got to the mall and I was about to park there and I just prayed, God, show me where to park. And I thought to myself, turn left, not right. And I turned left and lo and behold, there was a parking spot. The Spirit told me to do this and park right there and God blessed me with this wonderful parking spot. Maybe more serious things. I was quiet at home. I began to think and pray and I just sensed that the Spirit told me to marry this girl not that one, or to choose this job and not that job, or to sell my house, or whatever. This is fundamentally how a lot of people believe the Holy Spirit, or really the primary role of the Holy Spirit is, is to come to you in sort of a, a miraculous, maybe there's signs and wonders involved, to come to you in this way and give you personal direct revelation about specifics in your life. Now listen carefully. We certainly believe that the Holy Spirit applies the Word of God to our hearts shows us how the Word of God should be obeyed in our lives. It illuminates our mind. The, the Spirit brings the principles of the Scripture to bear on our lives. But this brand of epistemology is on a whole different level. This very popular view holds that the Spirit's main job is not just to bring you to your heart application of the Word. It's not just to bring to your heart truth from the Word. It's to give you new truth new revelation, specific 
revelation to you. If you hunt for this secret will of God hard enough, if you do the right things, perhaps engage in the right spiritual activities, the Spirit will come to you and perhaps miraculously or just directly tell you, turn left, marry this girl, sell your house, go after that job. It's like looking at the back of the book for the answers, Googling for the cheat codes. It's an easy way. You don't really have to think about all the doctrine and theology of the Bible. You just sort of ask for the answer, and if you ask in the right way, holding your mouth and lips the right way, maybe God will answer you through the Spirit. And then you sort of feel confident, and you feel like, oh, God's told me, and therefore I can do this with the confidence God has directly given me this revelation. Now, this is the dominant view of the purpose and the work of the Holy Spirit. Through voices, through impressions, sometimes even signs and wonders, God gives revelation. He speaks to us. This is often associated with the charismatic theology of God. God speaks new specific revelation to individuals. The Holy Spirit, in other words, is an epistemological tool that we use to know what we're supposed to do, to find the secret will of God. Well, there are many problems with that viewpoint. I don't want to get too bogged down this morning in this, but we need to analyze this very popular view against the view of the Spirit from Scripture. What does the Scripture say about the Holy Spirit? And I believe what this view gets wrong is first that in the Bible, new revelation only came to those validated, and along with that, the signs and wonders, only came with those who were validated to write the Word of God. That doesn't mean God can't work miracles outside of the revelation of Scripture, but it does mean in terms of the active work of the Holy Spirit, in terms of new revelation, this only happened with signs and wonders. This only activity was confined to those who wrote the Bible. That revelatory activity is limited to those who were assigned to write Scripture and around those who were assigned to write Scripture. And the main reason I say that is that the Bible itself says you don't need signs and wonders. Jesus condemned the Pharisees for looking for signs and wonders. You don't need signs and wonders in order to live the Christian life. In other words, the Bible does not teach that the normal Christian life is to be filled with all these signs and wonders and new revelation, and instead it is to be lived trusting God's holy word, which does indeed equip you for every good work. Now, do you believe that or not? Does the Bible truly equip you for every good work? Or must you look elsewhere for the cheat codes to life? No, you look to the Bible. So all this to say this and to bring up this point, what is then the activity of the Spirit? What does the Spirit do? What is the Holy Spirit up to? Obviously, there's going to be things that are outside of our scope of, we don't have omniscience, outside of our scope of knowledge, we would never know all the things that the Spirit does. There are other things that the Bible talks about. But fundamentally, what the Spirit is up to is what Jesus said when He said He's going to send the Holy Spirit. Jesus talked about the Holy Spirit. He talked about the purpose of His sending the Holy Spirit in John chapter 16. The Spirit was going to come after He left. The Spirit was going to come, and the Spirit was going to make the biblical truth alive in the hearts of people. The Spirit would come and help people know and understand and submit to 
God's revealed Word in the Scripture. He will awaken people's hearts. He will help them understand this. John 16, beginning in verse 7, Jesus says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. If I don't go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send Him to you. And when He comes, He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in Me. So He's going to make them awake to the fact, alive to the fact that they don't believe and that they're sinners. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father. In other words, this man, Jesus, the truth of Jesus, who He is, He's going to the Father. He is God incarnate. He has come to do something here on earth. You will see me no longer, He says, concerning judgment, because the rulers of this world is judged. In other words, there is an end of time. There is a, a process. If you read the Bible, you find all these truths of who God is, who Christ is, sin and righteousness and judgment. There is this plan that God has executed and, and Jesus is a part of that plan and they ought to believe in Jesus. When the Spirit of truth comes, He'll guide you in truth. He will not speak on His own authority. I take that to mean He doesn't come up with new revelations and specific ideas of your own personal life. He takes the Word and plants it in us. He, what He hears, Jesus says, He will speak. He will declare to you these things. He will glorify Me, or He will take what is Mine and declare it to you. He takes the Word of God and makes it real in us. This is precisely what Jesus told Nicodemus. You're a religious leader in Israel, and yet you don't understand the Spirit's role in this, that the Spirit must make you alive to these things. You must be born again. And furthermore, it's a shocking that you as a theologian, someone who claims to know the Bible, you've missed this truth somehow. You've missed your need of spiritual birth. All your religious accomplishments are nothing without regeneration, without new birth, and this is what the Holy Spirit's job is, to awaken your mind and your heart to the truth of Scripture. Now that brings us to point number one, if you're taking notes. Number one, the Spirit's work. Look there, beginning in verse one. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night for obvious reasons. Spiritual leaders did not like Jesus, and he would be ostracized by his own if it were known that he were speaking to Jesus and asking questions and wanting to get to know Jesus earnestly. You notice that's sort of a template of evil, right? If, if they have decreed something and you just want to ask a question, they hate you for it. They despise you for it. If you just toss something out, even just a logical question. Here we are during Pride Month. If you just ask a logical question about mutilating children, suddenly you're hated and you're a bigot. You can't even ask a question. Now, this is what Nicodemus felt from his own friends, evil imposters, religious elite in that day. He couldn't even ask a logical, scriptural question to Jesus. He had to hide in the shadow of night and go to Jesus and ask questions. He comes to Jesus by night. Rabbi, we know you're a teacher. Come from God. No one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see 
the kingdom of God. I know a lot of us, as humans, we struggle with that interplay between God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. God's responsibility, I mean, God's, God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. And we have to start by admitting, right, that we are not omniscient. We don't have omniscient power. We can't understand how it all fits together, how God is both sovereign, how both God is sovereign and we are still responsible. But let me give you a little tip. Just believe what the Bible plainly says. Don't try to do mental or hermeneutic gymnastics to get around hard verses, even verses that may defy what you have always thought or always believed. Just believe what the Bible plainly says. Jesus said to Nicodemus, you can't even see the kingdom of God unless the Spirit grants you rebirth. A couple of chapters later in chapter 6, Jesus would say, no one can come to me unless the Father, Father grants him. And by the way, Jesus would go on to say, that same person whom he grants to see Jesus, to understand Jesus, to come to Jesus, he would raise that person up on the last day. So God is responsible and sovereign over it all. Similar to what Paul said to the Philippians in chapter 1, it's been granted to you to believe. Luke would say in Acts, only those who had been appointed believed the gospel of Christ. Now read this verse, this first thing that came off of Jesus' lips about the sovereignty of God and salvation, and I would imagine it, it may have even troubled me reading that verse to some people. I remember one time I was in a Sunday school class and one of the students in the Sunday school class was asked to read from Ephesians chapter 1 where it says we've been predestined before the foundation of time. And he got to that phrase and read, predestined before the foundation of time. And the Sunday school teacher stopped and said, hang on a second. You don't believe that, do you? The guy was like, I'm just reading the Bible. Just believing what it says. Someone came to me one time and said, well, if the Spirit has to act first, if the Spirit has to do something before I'm even able to see the kingdom of God, if the Spirit has to put God's love for God in my heart, doesn't that make my love less than genuine? Doesn't God want to be loved in a genuine way? Now, there are at least three problems among others with that thinking. First, that position presumes that without God you can love Him genuinely. Is that really the position you want to take? That without God, without His help, without His Spirit, you have the ability to love Him genuinely. Not to mention the verse that says we love because He, what, first loved us. The second problem with that, it makes God's love disingenuous and conditional, meaning He's only going to save those who first love Him. I'm not going to look down to the quarters of time. I'm going to go look here and find the people who really genuinely have it in their hearts to love me. Is that what the Bible says about God? It does say He loves His enemies. He saves us in the middle of our sin at the right time. Those of us who are in the middle of our sin ungodly. Third, 
problem with that mentality is you have the ultimate result, and the ultimate result is if you go down this thinking that is contrary to what Jesus says here, you end up with the only difference between people in heaven and people in hell is that the people in heaven are just better. False. We're just as filthy and sinful and depraved as anybody else on this earth. And it takes a holy God by His Spirit to come to us and awaken us so that we can even see and understand the gospel. How that plays in with our own choices. We are to choose God. We are to repent. We are to have faith. We can't explain all of that. But Jesus very clearly says here that the Spirit must raise us up before we can even see the kingdom of God. We could spend a month of Sundays talking about this, but my advice is simply take Jesus' words at face value. This will not only make your hermeneutic of the Bible a little easier. You get to those hard passages and you just say, well, I don't understand how it works, but I'm going to believe what it just plainly says. But it also will open up to you a, a submission to the Word of God, a submission to what He says like never before, and a worship of Him like never before. Look at verse 4. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes. And you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Jesus said, unless one is born of water, and I just got to pause right here, and, and there's a little bit of debate here. Some people mean, some people think that this means naturally born first, and someone has to be naturally born and then spiritually born. Uh, I think a better interpretation is to look at the following verse. He's talking about, he's dividing the line. There's, there's spiritual birth and there's physical birth. And when he says water and the spirit, he's talking about spiritual birth. So I think the water there means the cleansing that happens. I'm going to read later on in the benediction from Titus. Regeneration is a sort of cleansing He brings to you. It's that transformative righteousness that we talked about last time. You're not getting in the kingdom, Jesus says, unless the Spirit gives you new birth. And clearly it can't mean the idea that some propose that it talks about baptism. You'd have to really unwind this passage and many other passages to somehow prove that a, some sort of ritual saves people. So Jesus said the only way you enter His spiritual kingdom is by spiritual birth. And then He goes on to say, and this would have been the money argument against Nicodemus' self-righteousness, works-based theology. You can't control the Spirit. You, Nicodemus, you have to be born again and just a little asterisk here, Nicodemus, you can't control the Spirit. He decides. And, he, and it's like the wind. You don't know where, where it has come from or where it's going. You can't manipulate the Holy Spirit. You can't control the Holy Spirit. You can't force the Holy Spirit, meaning you cannot do any ritual. You cannot tick some religious box and force God to give you new birth. How does the Spirit then make someone alive? How does the Spirit awaken someone, give them the new birth? How does He regenerate? 
That's what I read earlier from John 16. He convicts of sin and righteousness. He brings the truth of Scripture to their hearts and to their minds, not just in a mental way, but also their hearts. Brings it to your soul and you're spiritually brought to life. This is the new birth. This is regeneration, baptism of the Spirit. And like I said, what does the Spirit use? This brings us to number two, the Spirit's testimony. What does the Spirit use the Spirit uses Scripture. The Spirit uses biblical truth. Verse 9, Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel? You do not understand these things. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can, I, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Jesus is making the point Nicodemus was spiritually dead. He had the earthly words, the Scripture, the Old Testament Scriptures, yet he couldn't understand them or believe them because he was spiritually dead. And then Jesus goes on to tell him how the Spirit uses those truths, the gospel truth, to give people birth. No one has ascended to heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And, and here's the Scripture, the Old Testament Scripture, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. Jesus references the story from Numbers 21. In Numbers 21, the people of Israel were sinning. They were violating God's law, and so God sent them a curse. He cursed them with all these little snakes. And these were deadly snakes. These snakes bit the people, and many people in Israel died. And God told Moses, what I want you to do in terms of salvation is I want you to provide them a vicarious, something to take the punishment, a vicarious picture, put it on a pole. It's another one of those serpents. Put it on a, a pole, a cross, if you will, and lift it up. And all those people who look in faith to this vicarious dead snake up here, they will find mercy and life. This, of course, is a picture of none other than the Son of Man, Jesus Christ. Many years ago, I heard a sermon from Numbers 21. If I remember correctly, the outline went something like this. In this, you have a venomous curse. The people were dying. They were dying for their sin. They were punished by God for their sin. They were suffering this punishment of sin. Then God provided a vicarious cure. He put a dead snake or a bronze snake up on that pole. The picture is that that snake had received the punishment of God on their behalf. You can imagine some lady who had been cured by looking at the snake up on the pole, rushing back to her tent, saying to her husband, Honey, God's provided salvation and life if we would only look to this vicarious cure. Maybe a husband responded, You're not talking about the snake on a pole theory, are you? God had provided a vicarious cure so that all that looked to, looked to that vicarious cure, they would enjoy a victorious conquest. If they looked to that cure and believed in God, God would not only let them live, but they would be carried into 
the promised land. Well, Jesus is pointing out this is the ultimate meaning. I am the ultimate meaning of that passage. What happened there was a shadow of what God is going to do with me. I'm going to be lifted up. I'm going to be a vicarious cure. You're under a curse. I'm going to be that vicarious cure so that all those who look to me will have life and be ushered into the promised land. The testimony of the Spirit here is not new revelation. It's not new personal signs and wonders, new scriptural truth. No, the Spirit calls upon them to look at Scripture and believe. This brings us to this final point. What is the sign of the Spirit? What's the evidence of the Spirit? A bunch of supernatural signs and wonders? Personal revelations? No, if the primary work of the Spirit is to call people to Christ using Scripture to awaken them and their hearts to the Word of truth and then to mature them continually all the way to glorification, if that's the primary work of the Spirit, then the primary sign of the Spirit is simply people believing in Jesus. Number three, the Spirit's sign. Verse 16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him, whoever believes in Him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe Him is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the only Son of God. This is the judgment. Light has come into the world. People love darkness rather than light because their works are evil. Everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. At this point, Nicodemus might have been thinking, maybe like some of you, well, how do I know that the Spirit has awakened me? How do I know if God chose me and the Spirit moved in me and gave me that rebirth, that new birth? How do I know if I'm one of the elect? Very simple. Do you believe in Jesus? If so, Jesus says it. Whoever believes in me will not perish, but have eternal life. You're not condemned. And as you live your life, you continue focusing on Jesus. You're not there to check off spiritual boxes and impress God so that He'll do things for you and do favors for you. No, you're living a life abandoned, abandoned of yourself and of your sin, living a life in glory of God, thanks to the Spirit's work in your heart. And what's even better than that is not only do you get to live life in that way, you get to introduce other people to that life. You get to tell people this same news. You can tell them that God must do a work in you. You can't control the Spirit. I can't control the Spirit. But there's one thing I know. I know about the sign of the Spirit, that if you believe, if you repent and follow Jesus... You, you are born again. God has done something in your heart. And you can rest assured you are not condemned. Well, let's pray that God would call all of us, if we haven't, to look to Christ, the Son of Man. And let's pray that if there are those of you who are in a conviction to go share the gospel, that you would do that as well and share this magnificent truth to others. Father, we thank you for all that you've given us. I pray that we would be faithful to share your truth, these wonderful truths of Scripture, knowing that it is your Spirit 
that uses these truths, the truths of Scripture, to call people out of darkness into light. And so I pray that as your ambassadors, we would call people to be reconciled to you in this way, to believe in your only Son. Lord, we don't know how your sovereignty works and our responsibility. We don't understand all that, but we do know that if we believe, if we love Jesus, if we pursue your truth and your Scripture, Lord, we don't have to be live under, love, be fearful of any condemnation. We don't have to live under that fear anymore, or you've given us eternal life. Again, for those who are here, those of us who are believers, I pray that you'd not only convince us of, of this even more, but Lord, get, grant us the desire to move forward. Lord, may your Spirit move in us, even as we read these words of Jesus giving a personal story of truth, of giving someone Scripture so that they would believe, we pray that you would move us to go take these truths to others as well. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, do not stand. We are going to have our new members come here in a moment, so let me read a benediction. And like I said, this is from Titus uh, chapter 3. Uh, I'll read around verse 5. It's that whole section. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works by, done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Amen. Amen.